Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we're revisiting an episode I had back in 2018 in the forests of Costa Rica. I spoke with Dr. Scott Armbruster, who's studying a genus of plants that produces some of the most bizarre yet beautiful inflorescences I've ever seen. We are talking about the genus Del Champia, or Del Campia, tomato potato at this point, but they're members of the Spurge family, Euphorbiaceae, and you can find them in many tropical forests throughout the world. For as weird and obscure as this genus can seem to most of us, even those botanically inclined, they have a lot to teach us about evolution, pollination, and so much more. That's why Dr. Armbruster has spent his entire career trying to develop them as what he calls a non-model model system. This was a really fun conversation, and I'm so happy to bring it back to you today. But before we get to it, I just want to say if you're enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue, consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash plants because I could not be doing it without all of the wonderful help of my patrons each and every month. The show wouldn't exist without them, so consider becoming a patron today. But on with the show. Without further ado, here is my revisited conversation with Dr. Scott Armbruster. I hope you enjoy. How about we start with an intro? Tell us a little about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I'm currently a professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Portsmouth in the south of the UK, but I live on the Isle of Wight, so I commute by ferry. And I grew up in California, got my PhD at UC Davis, took a job in Alaska for about 15 years, moved to Norway and worked there for seven years full-time and then another 10 years part-time, and now I'm in England. And what are you studying exactly? I work on the evolutionary evolutionary history, basically, um, and the contemporary selective pressures that operate in plant-insect interactions with a focus on pollination, with secondary interest in herbivory and seed predation. Excellent. Now, one of the reasons you're here is because this is an orchid bee symposium, and one of the, the genera that you work with is a group of euphorbia that have entered into a relationship, if you will, with orchid bees. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which which genus is that? The genus is kind of an obscure name. It's it's uh, named by Linnaeus after a French botanist who had the name of Dalachamp, and he called it Dalachampia. And uh, it's actually was based on a specimen or a drawing of a specimen collected and, and drawn by Plumier, who was a Jesuit monk on the island of Martinique. Mm. And somehow Linnaeus got a hold of this drawing and said, oh, this is clearly a new genus and a new species. So he called it Dalachampia scandens, awesome. based on a drawing, which was actually inaccurate in the <laughs> sense that it had tendrils on the drawing, and Dalachampia never has tendrils. But otherwise, it was a pretty good drawing. Okay, so you say tendrils. I usually associate tendrils with vines. Are these vining yes, plants? Yes, these are mostly vines. Okay. That species is definitely a, a, what's called a twining vine, which means no tendrils. Uh, it just wraps clockwise up around things as it grows. Mm-hmm. And there are 130 species or so. About 100 of those, maybe a little more than 100, are, are vines. And there are... Um, three or four independent origins of shrubby habitat from mm-hmm. the vines. So there are some shrubby species, but the majority, the vast majority are vines. Fascinating. 
Now, one of the more interesting aspects of euphorbias are always their flower morphology, and across the board, it's it's pretty strange. But I think Delchampia probably wins, or is up there at the top of one of the weirder floral morphologies. Do you care to describe that sure. a little bit? Well, it it's a it's kind of like a primitive cyathium. So cyathium is what a euphorbia has, which is where the male flowers have been reduced to one stamen each, mm. and the female flowers have been reduced to one pistil each, so it looks exactly like a flower, but structurally it's an inflorescence. But, so Dalachampia is like that, except in this case the male flowers are not nearly so reduced. They have sepals, and they have many stamens, uh, and there are about typically ten male flowers in, the, in this pseudanthial inflorescence, it's technically called, which is a, like, a, like a composite. It's a, like a sunflower. It's a, bunch of little flowers coming hmm. together to work in common for pollination. So we have, in addition to these ten male flowers, there's three female flowers, which are, again, they're just uh, styles, stigmas, and ovaries, and, uh, and some sepals at the base. So they look completely unlike the male flowers, and, and yet they are very distinctively flowers. You wouldn't mistake them for being just a pistil, as you would in a euphorbia. And then they're subtended by two, in most species, two large petaloid bracts, which are often very colorful. Mm, indeed. And uh, open and close. So open by day, close by night. So they're very clever that way. Wonderful. And uh, are they producing scents? Um, so I'll probably, I speculate that all species, or nearly all species, produce some scent in the same way that a, a rose produces scent. Mm. Um, but that there are certain species that produce scents to attract male euglossian bees, and other species that produce resin to attract female euglossian bees. Wow, so one of the more interesting aspects of the ecology of these bees is the fact that males and females are looking for vastly different things, and when you say resin, what do you mean by that? Well, in the case of Dalachampia, these are mixtures of oxygenated triterpenes, so this is a, a chain of C of, of 30 carbons with uh, oxygen and hydrogen added on to the to the corners, if you will. Um, so these are long chain structures. Uh, although I don't think any of them are cyclic. They're squalenes in the same kind of group of compounds, and some some of these will be cyclic. That is, make a, a round chain, if you will, interlinked. Um, and these are collected by female bees for constructing their nests. They're mm -hmm. waterproof. Some resin, plant resins are antimicrobial, and they're structurally quite strong, and some of them become hard and firm, others remain soft and pliable. Mm -hmm. And having a workable resin is important for the bees, because of course they have to collect it when it's soft, they have to build their nests out of it when it's soft. And in some cases they, like with the, the cells that the larvae are in, the larvae have to get out. So if they hardened as hard as a rock, <laughs> they would have problems. So right. Uh, floral resins produced by Dalachampia and also by the Clusia tree are uh, very, very slow to harden. The exact chemistry of that is not entirely clear, but it's probably because it's a complex mixture of compounds. And so it makes it a, also a predictable, renewable resource for the bees. W unlike a sap dripping out of a tree they might collect, but it, yeah. it will harden up and, and heal over within a, within a, a week or less, hmm. whereas Dalachampia will and Clusias will keep blooming over extended periods, yeah. giving a, renewing that resource for them. Now, you have an impressive publication record on this group, and you've studied a lot in regard to the evolution of this. Did they start out as being attractive to Euglossian bees, or is this something that they kind of probably had a different pollination mechanism and then have become more specialized through time? 
Well, uh, it's hard to say. We know that the sisters to this group are probably pollinated by nectar-feeding or pollen-collecting bees, probably not Eugosine bees. Mm -hmm. uh, and somewhere in the murky past, which of which we have no record, <laughs> the, um, the proto-Dalashampia, the ancestor to all the modern Dalashampias, uh, started producing resin to protect probably its male flowers in bud. Interesting. Uh, so it, it, resin is very common, but all uses, other than these special studies that we've done on floral resins, all plant resins are known as, uh, if they're known, it's known at all, their function, it's the function is defense. Hmm. And they're both mechanically and chemically defensive in, in most plants. And it's likely that that's how this originated in Dalashampia, attracting female bees, uh, perhaps Euglossine bees, uh, which collected that resin sort of on an incidental basis, and then by accident actually sort of played the role of pollinator, and they were so good at it, then that selection drove them to not only produce more resin, but to produce it in a concentrated glandular form, which mm. no longer served the purpose of defending the male flowers, but was really good and easy to collect by the female bees. So it improved the wow. attractiveness of the flower to the bee because it was now more rewarding. And it also caused the bee to orient in a more regular fashion, which hmm. made it a better, became a bilaterally symmetrical structure and causes the bee to land in the right way uh, with respect to getting pollen on the right part of the body and depositing it on the stigmas from the right part of the body. Wow. Yeah, and it's, it's really well illustrated in the diagrams you showed us, which I will post links to your publication so that people can mm -hmm. see those. But when you say that these evolved as defense compounds originally in the plants and now the bees are using them one has to beg the question do you think that this could have been other than just structurally building uh chambers and such do you think it's providing any defensive benefit or antimicrobial benefit for the bees well we've we've tested that i had a, a graduate student who looked at this sort of thing in in Clusia and found they were antimicrobial and he also looked in dalashampia his name is john Loklom by the way. And in Dalashampi he found no evidence of antimicrobial properties, but in Clusia very strong hmm. antimicrobial, particularly antibacterial properties, suggesting that they may well be um, useful for the bees in terms of keeping down the bacterial growth and possibly fungal growth as well. Cool. So what are the male bees doing when they're visiting the flowers then? If they're not building cells, what are they up to? So. In uh, at least three, probably four lineages, the Dalashampia flowers have abandoned producing resin and instead produce fragrances. Hmm. And they've done it in a couple of ways. The, the classic one is that the same gland is there, but instead of that gland, instead of it secreting resin, it secretes a monoterpene fragrance. And we know that monoterpenes are biosynthetically related to triterpenes. So a monoterpene is a chain of 10 carbons okay. and remember the triterpene is a chain of 30 carbons and to build those 30 carbons classically anyway uh, you need to take uh, these precursors um, C5s, C10s, C15s and typically you take two C15s put them together and you get a C30. There's some controversy and discussion about what the bio biosynthetic pathways are across all plants. It's gone from thinking there was one way it was done to thinking now maybe there's a lot of diversity in these biosynthetic pathways. But my hypothesis is that the C10s were being produced originally to create these triterpene resins and by accident a synthase was lost 
that caused a, basically just a short circuit and shunting hmm. out of fragrances that were by accident attractive to male bees and that sent up uh, basically instantaneous speciation, reproductive isolation <laughs> and off it went with the independent history which then led to the origin of three or four more species doing wow. the same thing. So that's one way. The other way is what I call advertisement fragrances produced by the stigmas, which is a bit strange to start with. Yeah. And then by accident, just a few of these were attractive to male bees, which were good pollinators, and they sort of took over, and they s these species stopped producing a lot of resin arranged in the right. gland to attract females. So, so that's happened probably in three lineages. Wow. So the stigmas producing odor, or this fragrance, that's that's pretty unique, right? I mean, it was thought that that couldn't happen? Yeah, I was told by a reviewer of either one of my papers or one of my proposals, I forget which, that this is well known to be impossible, therefore <laughs> you've made a mistake in interpretation. Whoops. But as you saw from my slides, the yeah. bees have also made the same mistake, because male bees, when they're collecting fragrance, they, they use their front legs to mop it up, and they're mopping up something from those stigmas. Yeah. And if you separate out the parts of the flower and you put them in little bottles and smell them, you will smell the fragrance that is so strong in these these flowers mm. it comes from the female parts not the bracts not the male parts so so both your nose and a gc mass spec and the bees confirm that's where <laughs> it's coming from multiple lines of confirmation yeah. take that mr reviewer yeah so it's producing it from the stigma and they have to scrape it to get it off but that seems pretty counter to what a stigma its function is it's to hold on yeah. to the pollen right yes this is a bit of a mystery and um the only thing I can, can guess is that independently all of these lineages have evolved pendant flowers. So normally they're facing sideways, okay. these blossoms. And in the lineages that produce the fragrance from the stigmas, the, the blossom is pendant, that is hanging down. So the bee has to fly up and grab onto it, and it's mostly focusing its, its mopping up of these fragrances from the tip of the stigma. So I'm guessing that maybe pollen gets up higher mm. and is less likely to be dislodged. But it's a bit of a mystery because it's like, well, how does the pollen stay on the right. stigma if you have these males cleaning them off to brush up the... So that's, that's not really well resolved at this point. But I'm guessing that maybe the dependent nature of it is part of the, part of the story, part like of the answer. Keeping on that uh, the keeping tip Keeping the tip and not, not allowing yeah. them to mop the entire surface really efficiently like they might if they could land on it and wander all over. The thing that really blew my mind was seeing which species is this, just so people know? Well, the one with the really expanded um, stigmas is Dalachampia, that I showed a picture of this, yeah. Dalachampia fragrance. So fragrance has this long, what looks like a very long style, but you in fact said that the whole elongated organ there is actually the stigmatic surface, so it's all receptive to pollen? Um, yes, uh, um, almost all Dalachampia have a very extended stigmatic surface, but this oh, one's okay. extreme. Yeah. And yeah, so it, I mean, it is a style, but the stigmatic surface wraps back down around the style. Okay. And uh, quite what the de development of that is is not clear. I mean, I've never looked at mm. it in, um, in a sort of with SEM developmental s s techniques, but but um, Peter Endress has looked a little bit at it, and uh, and he comes to the same conclusion that indeed the stigma does has evolved in most of these species to extend halfway, two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way down the style. So mm. pollen grains will germinate there, but as I pointed out the other day, the, any pollen tube that enters into the, into the tissue, it has to grow all the way to the tip of the style 
before it is allowed to turn around and come back wow. down towards the ovule. So it goes backwards. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's yeah. quite strange. Is there any sort of hypothesis as to why that could be? Well, I have a sort of mathematical model that suggests that by doing that, you increase the um, intensity and the fairness, proportional fairness, of pollen competition. Huh. So remember, pollen grains are sort of in a competitive race to get to the ovules. There's only three ovules in each flower, so oh, only really? three pollen grains can be the fathers. So, and there might be a hundred pollen grains land on right. the stigma, so it's very intense competition as to which one gets there wow. first. So if they all land at the same time, the ones that land on the side would have a very short distance to grow if they were allowed to go grow straight mm -hmm. to the, the ovary and the ovules and fertilize the egg. So by forcing them to grow backwards, it actually makes it a bit more fair for the ones on the tip. Hmm. And it's, uh, as for an American, I uh, argued this a bit like half-court basketball. <laughs> you can't go straight to the basket if you've, right. you've got to go back to, to, the, uh, to the middle of the court because you're only playing on half a court. Yeah. It makes the game closer to a full-court game. Right. So it's just like that. So it might not be obvious, but pollen competition would be a way of increasing uh, or potentially selecting for more fit paternal lines. Yes, exactly. Wow. That's the hypothesis. There's mixed data about it. I, I guess the bulk of the data supports that it's going on. Yeah. Um, another, another suggestion that actually my group made was that it's also a way to screen out the negative effects or some of the negative effects of inbreeding depression. Oh, because um, pollen grains, remember, are haploid, sure. and that pollen tube uh, expresses in the process of growing, there's a lot of cell function going on there, a lot of physiology, and up to 60-70% of the genome is expressed in the wow. process, according to a little bit of work that's done in corn and a few other crop species. So a lot of the genes are expressed in the process of getting the sperm to the egg. And in racing down that style is a, is a pretty energetically expensive process. It's yeah. one of the fastest growing um, structures in, in, in the plant kingdom. That's remarkable. Because it's, uh, you know, you've got a style uh, two centimeters long and maybe it takes uh, an hour to grow down it. So it's really? fast. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> so, so genes are being expressed. If you have um, deleterious alleles that are recessive, they're not recessive when it's haploid. Yeah. There's no, recess no recessiveness in the haploid condition, so they huh. will be expressed, which means that they will show their weakness. It can't be, you know, hidden in the, yeah. in the, in the diploid condition in a heterozygous state. So that means that the mother can screen out inferior pollen that would potentially create um, inbreeding depression. Amazing. Now, when you see multiple species lined up, you'll notice that those bracts, many of them are very colorful. There's pinks, there's whites, there's greens, so there is a visual component to these flowers. Have you seen any patterns into uh, habitat preference, pollinator preference, and what these colors are showing, or is that relaxed because of these fragrance and resin compounds? Yeah, clearly the in most species the bracts are brightly colored or at least prominently displayed against the vegetation by being white pale green, sometimes pink or mm -hmm. yellow. So I think that the selection there is to be visible to the bees, even though of course the reward is the resin or the fragrance, and, and there are odors they can cue to as well, but it gives them an associative learning cue. But whether it's pink or white, um, I think there's no, there's no correlation with any difference in the pollinators. Mm -hmm. um, the, there is a slight weak correlation after you correct for phylogeny 
that could just be a coincidence or it could be a real thing going on. It's about one chance in ten that it's just, just coincidence. And that is that the small hypanthidium and other um, and megachylid bees that are not eugossian bees but do use resin in their nest construction are disproportionately common on species with leaf green bracts, deep green bracts. And they're not very visible to the human eye. They may be more visible in, like in ultraviolet, where mm. which the bees can see. Uh, so to us, they look very obscure. And, <laughs> and uh, these smaller bees um, seem to be disproportionately associated with those as pollinators. Mm. But uh, whereas the big euglossian bees are much more commonly associated or somewhat more commonly associated with white or pink or uh, pale green that we, s we see as different than the color of the vegetation. Right. Wow. But there's a huge radiation in color which we don't think is related to selection generated by pollinators except to be showy. Mm -hmm. And then the solution to that can take several forms. And what we found is that all the, all the species with pink brats also have anthocyanins deployed elsewhere in the plant perhaps for protective functions. Mm, right. So becoming pink might just reflect the fact that, well, anthocyanins are already being produced for protecting buds and leaves, young leaves and things, and perhaps that's just the, eas the root of the easiest way of displaying sure. showiness or responding to selection for showiness is to use those anthocyanins to look different than leaves. Huh. A lot of things to think about. And that's what's incredible is you've spent a lot of hours, a lot of time working on this group, and I think your, your work is proof that uh, for every question you answer, it opens up doors to many, many, many more questions. So what's next? I mean, where do you go with this? What's, what, do, what kind of questions are you still aching to answer? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, we, we still have a, at this point, I, I need to do some taxonomic cleanup. <laughs> um, almost every floristic treatment that includes Delachampia is wrong because wow. the taxonomy is, is, there are many taxonomic mistakes, including species that I haven't described yet. You can't really blame anybody <laughs> for that, except me. But, but there are a lot of synonymies that are wrong, where people have pooled things that are actually quite different. We have the advantage of having done the molecular right. work, so we know that you know, two things that are kind of similar, but kind of different, really are different because of their, of their DNA signature. Um, so I, that's not my highest intellectual priority, but it's something I feel I want to, um, before I leave the world, I want to leave, <laughs> leave the systematics of Delchampi in better shape so that somebody who wants to continue working on it from an evolutionary perspective or just for floristics and conservation, mm -hmm. it, you don't know you have a rare species if somebody hasn't put a name on it. Certainly. So, um, so that's one, one thing that is definitely on the doorstep um, to keep plugging away at getting some of this backlog of new species described. We're also interested in conflicting selection. You know, we have evidence that herbivores or seed predators select on the same traits that the pollinators do. Mm -hmm. And how does that balance out? We heard some in some of the other talks about weevils that are selecting on the flowers and there's a cost to being showy or having a strong scent and that right. your enemies can respond to it as well. And we have the same thing going on with Delachampia with not so much scent, we haven't really got evidence of that, but definitely selecting on. So the weevils that feed on the seeds find the, the, the blossoms in the same way that the pollinators do by looking for these large showy bracts. Right. If the bracts are smaller, you get fewer weevils, but fewer pollinators. So we'll continue doing that. <laughs> and then um, I'm always hopeful that we'll find some amazing new pollination system. <laughs> uh, I mean, when we started, 
working on this in the 70s. Um, male euglossine pollination was hardly known, and it certainly wasn't expected outside of orchids, except for maybe anthurium at that point, mm. so some aeroids never expected or predicted in euphorbs, so that was kind of a, a, a discovery and an unexpected result that I wouldn't say changed the history of pollination ecology, <laughs> but it, it certainly made people more aware that, oh wait, there's more things going on with euglossine pollination than just orchids. And similarly, uh, resin at the time was never really understood to be, a, to be a reward for bees. Yes, bees use resin in their nests, but they probably get it from tree sap or something. Mm. And to find that, that a number of flowers in, in several genera were, were using this as a way of attracting pollinating bees was pretty much a new thing. So I'm, and then we found several new uh, unexpected pollination systems in Madagascar. and. I'm always hopeful that we'll right. find some other really unexpected twist. Yeah. Um, so it's still at the stage of discovery and, uh, and filling in natural history. But my long-term goal is to be able to get a historical perspective on how this all happened, when this all happened, right. and how does, what's the interaction between moving between continents? Because this plant is found all around the world in the tropics, west of Wallace's line, basically. Wow. So it gets to Indonesia. Uh, it's absent from Australia, but basically Indonesia to South America, throughout the tropics, anything below about 2,000 meters has got <laughs> probably got some Dalashampia in it. And I'd like to have a better idea of what are the costs and advantages of moving between continents. Can you take your pollinators with you? Do you evolve new pollinators? Mm. How has that come about? That, most of that work's done, but I still need to write it up. And then we're also looking at um, phenotypic selection. So can we measure selection in the field, and if so, does uh, selection in one place differ from selection in another place, and do we see that the populations differ in a way that's consistent with the selective pressures mm -hmm. we can detect, and if so, what's the genetic basis of those differences? Uh, putting all that together is, is a, lot of, a lot of greenhouse work as well <laughs> as field work. Exciting, so though. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I, what I really admire is how multidisciplinary all of these approaches have been. I mean, chemistry, genetics, field biology, botany, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And it's, uh, it, it's so nice to see such a long, like, fruitful career in, with a genre that probably most people have yet to encounter in their lives. So, Yeah, it's been a really good model system for me in the sense of what we call now a non-model model system. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning it's not a Rabidopsis. It's not a Rabidopsis, but... It, <laughs> It's uh, enough diversity in ecology and inter in terms of its interactions with pollinators especially, and morphology, but not so much as to be overwhelming. 130 sure. species, you can get a handle on <laughs> what the evolutionary history is to some extent, getting a good phylogeny, yeah. and uh, find most of those. I mean, I think we have 80 taxa in our tree now, 80, at least populations, it's arguable as to just exactly how many taxa those represent, but it's certainly more than 50. So we have, we have probably a, a little over half the species are represented. There's some big gaps in Brazil, and I'm now collaborating with a number of Brazilian students, oh, so hopefully we'll fill some of those gaps. Great. Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a very good system, and my patience in sticking with, yeah. with this, which I actually started for my thesis. Wow. And <laughs> I'm still working with it. Amazing. Yeah, so this was my thesis project, and I'm still working on my thesis project, yeah. I guess you could say. It's, I love it. It's a testament to your passion and drive. <laughs> so um, we've only scratched the surface here. If people want to know more, find out more, do you have a website, or how do you recommend people find out about your work? I'll post it, obviously. but Yeah, um, 
if they go to the University of Portsmouth, they do a good job at making almost everything I've written publicly available on their website. Um, they're often not the fancy reprints because there are legal issues that preclude them from posting PDFs, but there'll but be right. some sort of a Word file that's a sort of has everything in it for the newer things. I think some of the older stuff they have the PDFs, but so that's um, if you just search my name and then put University of Portsmouth, mm -hmm. uh, they will find it that way. It's it's basically port.ac.uk and Wonderful. then they will be on the Portsmouth website and pop my name into a search or go to the biology department and then look under staff, they'll find that way. And then if they, they'll get my webpage and at the bottom there'll be a link to, I don't know, scientific contributions or research or something like that. And that will open up basically most of the papers I've done. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Aaron Brewster, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us. Pleasure. Yeah, cheers. All right, incredible stuff. I thank you all for listening. And of course, I thanked Dr. Armbruster for taking time to have that conversation with us. I will put all of the links to his work in the show notes for this episode. So go check it out. I can't emphasize enough how cool the Dell Champions are. Of course, if you're enjoying and you want to make sure that In Defense of Plants has a future, consider supporting it today. You can do that over at Patreon. You can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers. And all of those links can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Supporting the show ensures it can continue. I literally couldn't be doing it without the support of so many wonderful people each and every month. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Just make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.